This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the hundred the 127th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is a critic and journalist and a editor of a former uh, a former editor of The Brag. Um, this guy is a really terrific writer. He gives great Twitter, as most of the guests do on this show. I've been really looking forward to getting him on the show for some time, and we've just been lining it up. Um, you would have read his work in places like Vice and Junkie and Oz and Little White Lies and Guardian. And, of course, you know we've both got a mutual adoration for Brightwall Darkroom um, and the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia. Um, and he's just a really good guy. I like him. We've talked on Twitter 500 million times, and he's a great movie nerd and uh, of the highest order. And uh, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Joe Earp. Joe, welcome to One okay. Minute. That's such a beautiful intro. I'm so excited. I've wanted to do this for such a long time. <laughs> he, he's the best, you know. It's got it ticks off all the boxes. Oh, thank you, mate. Thank you so much. Look, guys, before I dive into it with Joe, we're gonna get, we're gonna rip into this minute because I know um, that for the 125th minute, which you guys would have listened to two episodes now, uh, Travis Woods. I think it took us 25 minutes to get to the minute, so we're gonna dive into the minute early on this one um there's a lot of dialogue there's a lot to cover um and uh it's just a a really great vincent Hanna coordination minute if you're looking at it on your screen right now on the non-definitive edition blu-ray from warner brothers as opposed to the fox uh director's definitive cut sorry we kicked off the show before that even existed um you will uh, be looking at vincent Hanna. it'll be two hours and six minutes on your dial he's just heard from drucker that ashley judd's charlene chahilis is ready to play uh bait for them as they try and bait chris chahilis down to that venice beach apartment and vincent is sort of doling out some instructions from hugh benny's balcony so here we go folks 127 minutes. Okay, that's good. Uh, here's the deal here. You, Benny, has reformed his wayward life and become a born-again good citizen. Apparently, Neil got sold out to us by this cowboy named Wengro. Wengro used to be a part of Neil's crew. Then he went to work for a money launderer named Van Zandt. Units are at Van Zandt's house as we speak, because he got shot dead earlier tonight. Now, if Neil goes after anybody else, it's going to be Wangro. Wangro just got himself a suite at the airport marquee under the name Jameson. He's there now. I want you to get that to bail bondsmen, bookies, assignment offices, and snitches in county. Anyone you can think of will put it on the street. Deploy a team down at the hotel and personally check their comms every 30 minutes, because maybe Neil will go for them. Okay? How you feeling? Banged up, but I'll live. Okay. Banged up, but I'll live. Joe, what a minute. Jesus Christ. It's a lot of stuff happening in that minute. 
It is. It's one of those great heat minutes, I think, that's kind of definitive of the film. Because when you think about the film, maybe you think about the big set pieces and the action. But what most of heat is, is just people standing in rooms, like talking to each other on the telephone. <laughs> yes. Like, that's the bulk of the film. <laughs> yeah. Having, you know, conversations in a diner or a bar or on a balcony or whatever. Yeah. It's a lot of, a lot of great dialogue. But I love this dialogue because it, um, it shows that so much of, it shows that that great dialogue scene in that diner, the purpose of Vincent's entire, you know, play, this completely brash, you know, pivot to I'm going to like try and get this more information out of this guy is really working. He's like, look, he's been betrayed. He's going to try and close the loop. And we're just kind of trying to catch him in our snare. Like these guys are just running plays all across the city in different locations, trying to catch these different guys and, you know, putting, putting Wayne grow. And it's, it's, it hadn't really dawned on me uh, until doing this show. Just what a, what a tantalizing maneuver that is. Um, um, as in like, you're putting a guy who, you know, Neil might go for, in the most appetizing place you can near the airport. Like, you know, you're putting him right there in the airport in a hotel and you, you're, you're disseminating that information to get that to into, into the hands of John Voigt's Nate. Um, and you know, it's just such a cool, like little maneuver. It's like, it's showing Vincent's mindset. It shows him how well he knows Neil, but also it's one of those great mirroring minutes where he's, you know, we've seen Neil talk about his motivation and what he's going to do next. And now Vincent's like parroting it. It's like they're reading each other's minds. It's a very cool little minute. Exactly. And I also really like to the fact that I, I guess the tension of heat as a film is that I guess you emotionally root for Neil. I find I rewatched it last night and I found that Neil is the character that I, I'm hoping for, but because Vincent is so good at his job, there's just something beautiful about, watching a scene like this where you see someone just be one step ahead of almost everyone else he's talking to just be smart. So there's this weird tension of like, you, you don't want Vincent to come up empty handed. You don't particularly want Neil to get caught. It's this kind of real tension. And the only thing I think you really know emotionally is how much you hate Wayne Grove. So for him to be the third character of this thing where you feel very strongly about him, but the other two, there's this ambivalence, I think it's just such a beautiful setup. It's it's really good. And, and it's also like, you, you're so right about like, you don't really hate anyone else. Even poor um, Henry Rollins, who, you know, one of the least believable moments of this movie is that um, 90s Al Pacino took out completely swole 90s Henry Rollins. So let's just be really clear on that. First and foremost, you even feel bad. It's five seconds into this minute. And poor, poor Hugh Benny looks just pale and beaten up, and he just he looks cold. Like he does, she just looks very unhappy here in this in this frame that Joe and I are looking at right now. And you're like, oh, you know, he's a douchebag, poor Hugh Benny, but you know, he's no Wango. Exactly, and he's also. I feel like you never. He never seems to particularly endorse anything that Van Sant is doing. He's just kind of this weird neutral player which um, I think so many people in Heat are. You have all of these characters who are just kind of like, they're just trying to live their lives. And it just so happens that living their lives means they have to do criminal things. Yeah, they've got to hustle, right? That's so funny. It's like he's, he's, got, he's a guy who's come out of jail 
and he's yeah. got a legitimate job now. Like he's been hired by this white collar, even though he's a white collar crook who's hired him, obviously. Um, and his only job is to just usually, you know, you would imagine his day job usually is just to get information, you know, find yeah. out people on the street, occasionally wheel and deal. But the stakes and the escalation of like what his job is, what his role is in this in this particular juncture, is just insane. Like he's just gone from like naught to a million. And I also love, um, I just love that again. He's a, <laughs> just some of the dialogue in this scene is just absolutely outstanding. And particularly Pacino being like, he's a born again new citizen. Yeah, um, I just love like the 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 way that he wrestles with those words. There's just so much exposition in the scene and it becomes very interesting talking on the phone. The whole of, you know, in the, in a lot of the back end of this movie is some just sensational shots of like Vincent's relationship to the city, you know, and him on the phone in this frame, seven seconds in, he's like the spokesperson of LA's nighttime life. You know, he, he belongs in this moment. Exactly. And I also think uh, watching it last night, the thing I was thinking about Pacino's performance here is like, he makes this bold, but also such a Pacino choice of seeming very bored with the exposition that he himself is having to spout. So there's no sense of like, he just feels, it seems like he's just got to get this words out. He's got to let everyone know what's going on. But there's a sense of like, oh, yeah, I already know this. I need to fill you guys in on what's happening. And that's so Pacino, because you could imagine that, you know, someone else, another director would say, no, you need to, you know, this needs to be punchy and exciting and interesting. But I think Pacino throughout this film, he's like such a, every choice he makes is wild and bizarre and <laughs> the wall. Yeah, it's great. I, I, and But you're so right, like from a really pragmatic perspective, you know, you know, Joe's very good at his job as an editor, folks, just as an FYI. But like sometimes you can see all the moves ahead and you're trying to coach someone or you're trying to do something and you you have all the answers. And he makes no bones about the boredom of how good he is at his job. These are all yeah. the things I need you to do for me. I can't do them all. Like, yeah. this is the story. And poor Schwartz, you know, Drucker's got his hands full. Casals has got his hands full, um, you know, with a pump-action shotgun probably pointing to that poor withered uh, Hugh Benny um, sitting there. And, and now, like, Schwartz with an arm in a sling is trying to manically take notes to get all the Vincent things done that he needs to get done for this to go through. So, yeah, it's just like... and I, I think that that just so plays because, like you said, in other movies they were trying to make the exposition exciting, but he's really just doling out instructions and he's at least giving a little bit of clarity to Schwartz who may not have put all the pieces together. So we kind of get to be like, oh, we're just part of Vincent's crew hearing this as opposed to, oh, shit, here's a big exposition dump over 60 seconds, which basically this is. Yeah, exactly. And that I feel like that's always been one of the things that man is great at as a director. He's so interested in procedure. So many of his films are about the beauty of procedure and watching things work and watching things assemble. And I think that's what I mean, this whole film, it's so quiet and it's so methodical. And then you have these big explosions. But then most of the like sinew of the film is this. It's just people talking to each other. Um, you know, kind of like, this is their day, this is their job, they're not, it's not, you know, they don't think they're changing the world, they're just doing what they have to do. And there's a weird kind of understated poetry to that, I think. Yeah, I think you nailed it about quiet beauty. And I like to reinforce it whenever we get an opportunity in the show, is like, especially as you see this movie in the 
depths of quiet at home or, you know, if you have a good setup or, you know, especially in a cinema, it is a, like, it is a very quiet and a very intense movie in the quiet. You know, this, this cat and mouse game, this weird mind reading where you kind of, it's almost like, you know, you know, it's a, a bit of a random tangent. It's like when you watch World Series poker, and you see that two people have like a competing for a hand and you kind of know who's bluffing. It's one of those moments that's rare if you ever do watch it on, you know, on your paid TV or you've ever seen it. It's like where two people have got an amazing hand and they're just powerhousing against each other. Like they're reading, they, they, you know, they're making these moves outwardly, but you know, like that they've got these, you know, they've got, they've both got pocket aces or whatever, and they're both just going hard in the paint at one another. And so you just get to watch the fireworks. And that's what this kind of is. It's like you consistently, and especially in the artfulness of the editing and the quiet of the way that they're doing it, and just this sort of unassuming procedural approach, um, you have this. But yeah, I, I, I get struck by the quiet now. Joe, I think mm. when I'm li- when I'm in the movie, I love the quiet bits, like the you know, especially as you know, as a dad of you know two small children, um, I love the quiet bits that I can watch and no explosions that I'm gonna just like immediately blow my eardrums and poor baby eardrums out when I'm watching this at home, um, in any next scene. But like here, you've got like you know it all being doled out, um, in sort of quiet. But I think that's the magic of it, right? It's like lulling you into this false sense of security in the quiet bits, and then just being explosive, being dynamic, ratcheting up the tension and knowing when we're not to use music. Cause I know you and I are both very, we're, you know, we watch a lot of content, you know, whether it's TV or movies and, and you just, sometimes it's just like, can we just have a little bit of artistry in the way that you're delivering music instead of manipulating me right now? It's nice to just watch some restraint. Absolutely. And I think that comes down to man is, um, He's such a self-possessed filmmaker. He very much trusts his own instincts. I think these days, given like Black Hat, some people would say for better and for worse. But anyway. um, (laughs) Oh, don't you dare, Joe, go down the Black Hat rabbit hole. People are listening. See, people on this show, they always want to drag me down that Black Hat rabbit hole. So I'm glad you've got the restraint to be like, oh, I'm teetering on the edge. Let's move on. Let's move on. (laughs) <laughs> for sure but yeah he he's a perfect example of someone who um i think you could if you were a first-time director or if you were someone who didn't have that self-possession you would worry about scenes like this and about you know so much of the movie that is so quiet and has so little music you'd think you know are the audiences getting bored do they know what i'm trying to say do they know what they're meant to be emotionally feeling but man is is so yeah i guess i want to say austere but he's also not austere because with the place that this film ends up is so emotional and hard felt but at moments like this you can feel him take two steps back from the narrative from the characters and he just wants to observe he doesn't want to tell you anything about what you should be feeling and i think the lack of music is such a big part of that yeah there's um you know if we talk about austerity or talk about that sort of that lack of emotion that's like that's the pivot between what what where you go with Michael Mann and you go with Chris Nolan. It's like I don't think Chris Nolan necessarily has the switch, the same emotional switch as Mann does. Like Mann seems to know the emotional trajectory of his characters in every moment of the film, whereas yeah. Nolan's a little bit more, I don't know whether it's like fatalistic or just a little bit more pessimistic about humanity 
um, um, just in general. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but it's like, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's, I, I, I think it's like because you know, in this film, despite the quiet, there's just there is a momentum. You know, it's. I think it's like a balance, and it's understanding like a rhythm. It's almost a, you know, in a musical tone, and and you know it in your writing as well. It's like you build a rhythm in a piece, you know, long or short. And I feel like in man's, you know, in this in this absolute, you know, you know, cinematic tapestry, this epic, this saga, he's kind of got a command of what the rhythm needs to be. Um, and you, you know, in a couple of episodes previous, we've talked about some you know, some scenes that went on the cutting room floor in this movie and you can, and, and although they kind of flesh out, um, um, flesh out some relationships and some happenings that we, you know, we, we only have to imagine off screen or, you know, maybe take out some of the ambiguity, which is for me, the stuff that I love, but in every moment, every decision that he made to cut something, you're like, yeah, that was right. That needed to go. That did not need to be in this movie. And so I don't think it would have the same impact you know, without that sort of command of like, I know the emotional trajectory, plus I also know when I want things to, as you talked about, like the balancing, being emotionally entangled with a character, knowing when to have those quiet moments, knowing when to be ambivalent, and then when you need to do it, you know, and, and then having the, the sense to go, okay, well, now we need to set up what the next basically, you know, the 35 36 minutes of the movie are going to be <laughs> right now with this exposition dump, we're going to set up in the, the next 30 odd minutes. Exactly. Well, yeah, I, I, I was thinking the film that it made me think about most last night when I was watching heat was widows, which mm-hmm. I think is the, um, such a, so indebted to man. And there's so many things like widows also has a getaway driver who gets recruited at the last minute, exactly like this film. Um, and Widows is a film that I'm mixed on. And the reason I'm mixed on that film is I really feel like there are moments where you can tell Steve McQueen is having to shift focus. He's going like, okay, well, here's the political part of the film, or here's the part of the film where I'm uh, expanding on the characters. Here's the thriller part. Whereas what I was thinking about with Heat is so much is happening constantly, but there's never a sense of shifting gears. There's never a sense of, oh, this is the exposition part, or this is the part where we're meant to know more about Vincent, yes. or this is the part where we're talking about loneliness, or this is the love story. It it just really does feel like it's constantly getting mixed into each other, all of those layers of the film. Yeah, I really liked I, I really liked Widows. I was a little bit stronger on it for that reason, but I agree that there's an effortlessness between the transitions of heat that is so rare. Like, and especially it's a, you know, Widows took the more, uh, you know, perhaps more, you would say more ambitious um, route, especially now to really anchor you to um, uh, a sort of messy socio-political um, uh, sort of landscape that they were trying to navigate at the same time as telling a really entertaining story that was just like inde- indebted to character moments. And I think, um, you know, you know, speaking of like the the political pivots, I feel like sometimes in the campaigning pivots of that movie, you know, around Colin Farrell's character, you feel the brakes get pumped a little bit. But then in other moments where it's like, uh, like a flashback of say Viola Davis's son, like has so much more emotional resonance because it's tied into her memory. 
and the memory of her husband. And so it's like this, I don't know, things seem to work a little bit better when they're fluidly tied into the characters. But yeah, you're right. It's, um, you know, I think Widows is going to have its day just like Heat did, you know. Like it's, I think Widows is the movie, you know, that is, is going to probably stand up and people are going to reappraise and be like, God, this is good. And go and do exactly what I did a few, you know, a week or so ago when the Oscars are on is just, you know, remind everyone that in the 1996 Oscars, Heat didn't get a single nomination. Yeah. Which is why I, yeah, I was looking that up because I was trying to remember if I knew whether Heat did well when it first came out. And the idea that, the idea that you wouldn't give it a cinematography or an editing or a sound mixing or even just one of those Oscars that they just toss off as like a consolation prize. Like, surely, if Suicide Squad can get one of those Oscars, then he... <laughs> well, look, you know, the the 19... Um, the, the 68th Academy Awards, the 1996 Oscars, um, it was the year of Braveheart. Best picture was Braveheart, best actor Nick Cage in uh, Leaving Las Vegas, best actress Susan Sarandon in Dead Man Walking... It was the year that Kevin Spacey won for The Usual Suspects. Mira Savino won for Mighty Aphrodite. Gibson for directing. Um, and I just look at this and I'm like... I mean, it's a garbage dump. Like, no offense. It's just like... I mean, I'm sorry. Um, you know, uh, none of these movies stand up the way that he does. None of them. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. Michael Mann's never really been a popular Oscar guy either. So yeah, look, Widows is the same thing. I, I mean, even just for for performances alone, you're just like, wow. Like, how are none of these people just even getting nominated? Like, it would be really nice if it said like six Oscar nominations and it was just all for performances. And if they didn't get any, then it's you know six time Oscar nominee for all these amazing critically lauded performances. And you're like, nah, nah. It's got Robert Duvall in it. It's directed by an Academy Award winning director. It's got an Academy Award-winning actress in the lead. Just craziness. Just craziness. It is, it is madness. And it does, I think Widows also speaks to what you're saying about, like, um, you know, the sense that, you know, who these days would make a film and would say this film was really inspired by Braveheart? Like, Braveheart, <laughs> no filmmaker watches Braveheart and says, oh, I, I know what I want to do with what that film did. Whereas I, I see the influence of heat everywhere on the way that people tell stories like this. It just, it completely changed the way that you tell a story about um, crime and robbery. Like I I watched it with my partner last night who'd never seen it before. And um, she was just, she was kind of stunned by moments like the coffee shop scene and like the last shot. Cause she was like, you could, no one would try a scene like that in the middle of a movie like this these days. And I think, that's weirdly a testament to Heat's influence, that if you made a film about, you know, a cop and a robber who who respect and know each other and have an emotional connection, Heat is the film that you can't avoid. It's like making a movie about a shark. You, you're <laughs> debted to yours. There's, it's, I, I, I think there's like, I almost call them genre ruiners. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you, go, you try and make a gangster film after The Godfather in the 70s. Just try yeah. Like it's like nah, I'm not doing it. I've I've got to I've got to take a completely different angle. It literally took like nearly 25 years, um, you know, or sorry, 26 years rather, you know, with like Goodfellas, where they make another genuine gangster film that people are like, oh yeah, that can go in the pantheon. That's in the Hall of Fame. That's a great one. And you're like, okay. 
it took that long. And then Sopranos comes along and is like, no, nah, we're going to do it different. We've got to pivot it again and tell this story long form and go like down the rabbit hole with it. And, and that's how it like shifts. But yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a really, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a strange one. And I, the thing I think with heat also is, um, and, um, you know, if you guys are listening, there's another episode where Cam Williams coins a phrase, which I won't steal um, about what he talks about, but it's like the phenomena of people saying they're influenced by heat and then just doing a really shitty job. And then you're like, what What were you doing? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's heat such a sprawling thing that when people say that it's influenced by it, you always go, are you influenced by, like, what precisely are you even talking about? Are you talking about the way that the, the procedural nature of the police? Are you talking about the fraternal relationships of, you know, fixers and crooks? Are you talking about the actual heist themselves? Are you talking about the action? Are you talking about the relationships? Are you like, what are you talking about? And I think also one thing that perhaps is, you know, is the drastic difference between like widows and, 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 and heat is like Michael Mann is inventing his vision of LA and these characters occupy his LA you know, this transient place where people are moving and it feels like they're always from somewhere else and they're and and it's almost like this cultureless, weird, you know, um it's like a stage. It's like a sound stage for them to operate in, but it's a living sound stage. It's got a pulse. It's it's there's something ab- about it. Whereas with widows, they're entangled by it. You know, they're in this very specific, you know, grid of Chicago in a very specific political landscape where, you know, you're in one car ride, we see from the ghettos, you know, one of the best scenes of the film, which is, you know, Colin Farrell just being really flagrantly racist with his assistant in the backseat of a car, like driving from a ghetto to his opulent house. And it's like a block away, Mm. you know, that entanglement sort of makes that really unique. But yeah, I, I also think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's really strange. It's the imprints everywhere. And, and, the best one that I've ever done is like one that no one even realizes is based on heat until they've, unless they've seen heat, which is the dark Knight. Like Chris Nolan was like, all right, cool. I'm going to do heat except with Batman and the Joker. So people are distracted that, so they don't figure out that I'm actually making a flat out remake of heat. I'm going to just throw these masked men in there and, uh, and, and hope for the best. Yeah. And it's, as you say, like what was Nolan influenced by from heat? I think it's just, like an emotional sophistication. It's like when you're saying, what yes. are you what are you indebted to um, with the film? You're indebted to, let's just make a really, really fucking good film about crime. Like, yes. that's what I think heat has become a code word for. You just say, <laughs> I want to be intelligent and classy and emotionally mature. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I prefer your log line, Joe. That's that. That's the punchy feedback I can see you delivering with red pen as your editor self. <laughs> make a really fucking good crime movie <laughs> like yeah. just just make a really fucking good one and make this piece really fucking good and people will like it which i, compl- I could not agree with more um yeah. in reference to this movie yeah shoot for the stars you know you don't you don't set out to make a shitty film so if you're going to make a crime film make heat yeah make heat that's exactly right exactly right you've got to really tackle it but i think it's also um it sometimes takes these genre ruiners to like redefine what you what you're allowed to do, you know, within genre. I think some people get constrained to, you know, the really great genre filmmakers um, are those who like absolutely get the form and function of what they're trying to achieve, and then just blow things out. Like just go, you know, with heat, you've you've essentially got um, 
you know, at one time or another, I think I've called this movie like it'd be great to see like an internet version of Heat where you just sort of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kitted it in a way where you were like you you film it completely from the cop side and you never see Macaulay, you know, mm-hmm. this wraith guy, and then on the flip side you could go on the Macaulay side and have Vincent as like this, you know, this this silhouette, this white hat silhouette in the distance that's always gunning for you and just seems to always know every move even though you, you're the guy who's always 10 steps ahead. And you kind of have that. There's this weird like, you know, this weird, weird like sort of train tracks of the movie that's doing that. Um, but then all the digressions of this like complete knot of other wonderful storylines that are all this emotional core of this movie is all that other ambitious stuff where you push out of it. So I think it's like you sometimes need these to go around. This is, oh, this is also what this genre can be. Like it can be something completely different and it can take on different perspectives. It doesn't have to be so um, myopic as some other, you know, genre films can be like, and it's, and I, I don't mean myopic from a sense of like, you're getting an identity of the film, but like you're just focused on one, you know, individual character in the genre doing their thing rather than, you know, multiple perspectives, entanglement, all this weird collateral damage that's happening across the place. It's um, it's kind of what makes it. A hundred percent. And, yeah, that's what, um, that's what I think makes it the film that it is, is that it is, it does, it does kind of, it's, I mean, it's not an experimental art film. Like, it is yeah. a exciting, really well-made, really functional piece of, populist entertainment like you're never bored it does drive forward but the idea that you could you can make that film and it doesn't have to be reductive and boring and it can say something that that really does linger with you like I just can't I I was thinking this again after watching the film I was like what other movie does that is is propulsive and is just like an a huge technical achievement but also has something to say about loneliness and about um, morality and about is it a good thing or a bad thing to draw up an ethical system and just stick to it. Like I really was struggling to think of films that combine both of those things. Yeah, I I don't think man ever loses sight that movies should be something that you're entertained by, which is yeah. like his like it's a real it's a real talent, you know to to know that to not ever dumb down your audience, but also, you know, to make sure that they're entertained. You know, you look at The Insider, which is extremely dense as well, just after it, you know, and then you can, you know, that's a, you know, biopic. It's, it's um, you know, it's got that, you know, new Hollywood paranoia obligation of sort of, you know, really making you feel what it's like to be under that sort of scrutiny and having those ethical and moral dilemmas as well. And then you get the, something great like Collateral, which again, occupied in the same sort of blank transient place that LA is. And it's just complete popcorn, propulsive, awesome. You know, like it's just like assassins taking over cab drivers and cops sort of like sniffing on their tail. Like, is this, what the hell's going on here? This is odd. And yeah, just weird things happening all the time and just, you know, throwing, you know, great left and right hand turns, but everything's done with character. Yeah, there's, it's, I don't know, man, that, you know, Joe, you know, you and I have, you know, talked about it off off air and I talked to everyone about it. It's like every time I scrutinize a new minute of this movie, I'm not less impressed. <laughs> I'm not bored. I'm not like, I just go, I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe it. It's made me possibly a worse movie watcher as in more, like I, I'll put things under much more scrutiny, um, yeah. a hard, much harsher um, 
a harsher critic on a crime film and and have a higher standard of what I'll just accept as a baseline. It's like you just go, if you're not even trying to say anything, then what are you, you? Then you're saying nothing. And in this movie, like it says so much, but it's like you can't. Not not everything can be heat. I, mean, I can't think I can be fair with that. But it's like, you know, something like Widows, which is at least striving for something more complicated and more, you know, morally ambiguous in the genre. Is like that's what you want. You know, not everything. You know, not everything popular needs to be boring. Exactly. And yeah, I, I think you're totally right about the idea that watching this film minute by minute could ruin <laughs> just the experience of watching films. I was thinking of that before. <laughs> but really, I don't know how many films you could you could talk for half an hour to 40 minutes about every minute. Like you, it, I think most films, you would start to see the seams. And this feels like a film that actually the opposite happens, that you realize that I think that comes back to man's like self-possession and also his painstaking perfectionism that nothing is an accident. Even a scene like this, which is a cop spouting exposition is it's tied perfectly into the themes of the film. And it's also exactly the right amount of information without being an info dump and all these things that like, yeah, how many other filmmakers have just the intelligence and the eyes for detail to do that? But one of the things you just pointed out, Joe, which I think is really important to talk about with, with this movie and with man is, you know, the perfection is also a professional obsession in, in some respects is because he heard this story in the seventies. You know, he's heard the story that just added this idea, Charlie, Chuck Adamson, um, who's a technical advisor on the movie. It was a Chicago cop who was hunting down a real life crook named Neil McCauley. And he was standing outside of a laundromat. They bumped into each other. And he was hunting him down and he and Neil McCauley basically knew that he was a cop. And in a moment which in 70 Chicago could have just literally been two men gunning each other down in the street, he decided to offer to buy him a cup of coffee. Mm. And they had a conversation which is both exactly like and nothing like the conversation you see in Heat. And it's, some, it's something that he's kind of essayed in crime story and approached it in ways in Miami Vice as far as telling like a story of a city and, and having, you know, stories be told. And then LA takedown is the, you know, how do I, I want to attempt a big sprawling narrative that is a saga. And so let's try it as a television movie that potentially weaves into a series because that may be the only way that you could tell a story as broad and as epic as I want to tell it um, and, and fit the canvas. And then, because that movie is a micro-budget movie and it's got the intent to push into a television series and it's it's sort of and it has to be leaner and it has to be tighter and it has to sort of tell a punchy story to sort of like you know here's almost like an abstract of what this could be. You then see him finally still have that like desire, that burning desire that no, the story that I want to tell has been, you know, I've, I've glanced against what its potential is. And he just was relentless that, no, it has to be bigger. It has to be bigger. It has to be broader. It has. It, 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 there's an epic that's out there, and I just haven't completely scratched the itch. And then he comes to it in this version of it, and it's like everything that we just talked about. It's like that relentless perfection is all synthesized perfectly, and it's like, oh, there it is. There's the masterpiece. It, took, it just took a few expressions and tests and drafts, many drafts, hundreds of drafts, you know, I guess. <laughs> Of however yeah. many he got to get to the idea. Um, I'm interested in your partner's, uh, before I finish uh, uh, this point, is I'm interested in your partner's reaction to the final scene. 
What was yeah, her reaction? It, she just, I think, um, and it's it's because of her reaction that I mentioned really feeling a deep sympathy for Neil. She, when Neil got shot, her reaction was like complete outrage. She was like, why am I meant to be enjoying this? She, I think she was worried <laughs> that the film was turning against Neil and was mm. punishing him and saying like, okay, bad guy's dead. This guy made the wrong decision. He's been shot. He's out. He's punished to an extent. Yes. And then when you have that, that final shot, I think it became clear because the thesis of the film, I guess, is that final shot is, um, I think I was listening to the commentary and man says something like they discover that they're the only two people in the universe for each other. And I think that that beautiful moment where you do realize like they did, one of them did have to kill each other. This is not a film that can end with both of them walking into the sunset. Like someone has to die. There is an alternate Shawshank Redemption end to this movie though, somewhere, somewhere on the internet. Someone someone has had these two rolling up in New Zealand together, you know, fishing or whatever the hell they were doing, watching iridescent algae. There is a version somewhere, Joe. I mean, this is 2019. And if yeah. and I just feel offended personally that no one shared it with me. Okay, people know that I love this movie. There is a Shawshank version out there. Come on, yeah. sort your life out, guys. Yeah. And I feel like it's it's you care about them both enough that although like it would be a bonkers ending, you'd kind of be like, okay, well I'm glad, I'm happy for them. I know you've ruined the artistry of one of the greatest endings in like you know, cinematic history, but I love those guys. So I'm glad that they're staring at the algae together. Look, if there's an alternate scene that was on the cutting room floor, I mean, I'm happy. I'd be happy with that, but I, I, I totally agree. I think to, to weave back into this minute, you know, in a, in a movie that is nearly three hours long, that has this relentless momentum and it has the necessity to sort of, uh, deliver exposition in the way that this scene has to do, but also does it with like the same functional and, you know, um, character clarity that it has in the rest of the movie. And then particularly um, the way that it sort of, again, is just propelling us to that final outcome. Like we, we're, we're sort of, it's, it's sort of burying the lead and planting the seeds um, for, you know, future revelations of like, are we, is Neil going to act to impulse or is he going to do what he's going to take to survive? And then there's this weird, you know, there's this weird impulse that we have as viewers, this voyeuristic urge. It's like we kind of want him to do the thing that we want him to follow his impulse. We don't want him to get away free, but we also are desperate for him to get away free. 100%. And we, and we want Vincent to catch him. And so in that moment, as we lead up, you know, to that final outcome, that final scene, that final shot, I would totally agree with Joe to say that it is the great like for me it's the greatest shot in cinema history it's the it's and and the most earned swelling score in a movie that doesn't manipulate you with music this movie i think it allows you to in the absolutely most perfect way you know these two in an embrace yeah 100% because it is it yeah the the sense of and i guess this is what this scene is kind of leading towards which i guess cuz this scene is kind of the beginning of the third act i guess yes that just this sense that um, this pull, this terrible pull that you know that you've learned enough about the, these two men to know that this is really only going to end one way. Mm-hmm. And just the sense that there's nothing you can do to avoid that and that, that you're, you're trapped 
watching it and you're as a viewer your allegiances are pulled in every single direction yes it just it feels like yeah as i say i'd love to see the happy vincent and neil ending but also (laughs) this is the whole film is driving towards that final image even in a scene like this where it's just people on the phone it you feel the pull of that final shot (sighs) well I feel the gravitational pull of that ending coming to this podcast. And so I wanted to take a quick moment to thank the incredibly articulate and completely spot on critic and journalist, Joe Earp. Joe, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And thank you so much for being the editor. Unfortunately, I I submitted one of my most proudest pieces. I was going to submit it to Joe. I pitched it to Joe and then he wasn't the editor of the publication anymore. So I left it. I, I didn't give it to that publication anymore. So um, uh, that was, you know, that was because I wanted to work with you, Joe. Amazing. Yeah, that's that's the world of publishing, right? You email someone and the next day you get there. This person doesn't work at this company. <laughs> that is that is 2019, 2018 publishing world. Um, but as, as I said, Joe's all over the place. If you want to follow him on Twitter, that's the best place. I will tag him if you're listening um, in this episode um, thread so you guys know all the deets. But um, at Joe underscore O underscore E-A-R-P. That's where you can find him, but I will link that in. Joe, thank you so much for being a part of the show again. It's been a real pleasure, and thanks for your support on the Twitter sphere. I've appreciated it very much. Thank you. Guys, thank you for listening. 120 episodes down. 127 episodes down, in fact, and really only 33 minutes left of pre-credits heat to appreciate and to gorge on and an end date in July. So thank you for being part of this insane ride. And in the words of Joe's great description, let's just jump on that gravitational pull to that final moment because here we go.